Okay, so this afternoon uh, we continue on. This is the final part of our series in Habakkuk. Uh, so we're focusing on verses 16 to 19 of chapter 3. Uh, and I want us this afternoon, as an important context, to look at the whole of chapter 3. And basically what Andrew looked at last week, and then our verses 16 to 19. So if you have your Bibles, let's have a look at Habakkuk 3, starting in verse 1. And the words are going to be up on the screen as well. So Habakkuk uh, says this, A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, <coughs> according to Shigionoth, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him, and pestilence falls in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath, Selah. You split the sea, you, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck, Selah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. And in our passage uh, this afternoon, so verse 16 to the end. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountains high, on mountain heights. Amen. Give God thanks uh, for his word uh, today. Um, in 2021 and 2022, around that time, there was a, a new phrase uh, that was coined amongst academics. Uh, we found it used more frequently in, in the media as a result. Uh, from time to time, it was mentioned uh, in conversation. You may have used it yourself. Um, it was a phrase that was used to describe the current state of our society. It highlighted a particular issue um, that was becoming increasingly prevalent in the lives of ordinary men and women, basically any one of us here today. And even if you've never heard of this phrase before, you'll no doubt recognise the present day reality that exists 
as we connect that phrase with what we see all around us. Uh, the phrase was a description of something that is currently happening right now in our society. The phrase was and is the anxiety epidemic. The anxiety epidemic. And the phrase can be backed up with concrete evidence to support it over the last few years. Uh, a number of studies have shown uh, there's never been a time when so many individuals, families, young people, even children, have experienced varying degrees of anxiety, worry, and fear. And anecdotally, this became apparent to me, not uh, this year at Holiday Club, but uh, last year. Uh, and as I share this, to be honest, this is probably one of many examples I could share, including my own personal struggles with anxiety from time to time. But there was a girl of primary school age who came along about three out of the five days that we had of Holiday Club. Again, it was in 2022. Uh, she began on a Monday. She lasted till the Wednesday. And that kind of tells you something that was going on within our life. Uh, she was so anxious about coming to Holiday Club. She was so overwhelmed with fear about this unknown event. She had never been to anything like this before. But she was in a constant state of sobbing and shaking. Uh, despite the encouragement and support of her dad and the team we had, nothing could shift this. Um, nothing could, could remove this sense of feeling overwhelmed. And I remember uh, we were sitting with her, we were trying to help her, we were encouraging her, we were praying for her, but there was no changing what was going on in the inside. Uh, something wasn't shifting within her. And we may not be anxious about a children's holiday club. Perhaps you are anxious about that, but I'm confident there will be an equivalent or equivalents for you in your own life. So when you think about your life, there will be things that cause anxiety. Uh, and this area that you're thinking about or these areas are without question um, opportunities in your heart and mind where you do experience fear and worry and that sense of feeling overwhelmed. And in many regards, it doesn't matter what others might say to you as a means of trying to change your heart and mind. You know deep down that unless God steps in, unless his word becomes more of a reality in your life, you'll remain in a frequent, maybe even a perpetual state of fear and anxiety. So the question I want to ask this afternoon is what does Habakkuk have to say about this for our own lives? As we think about the anxiety we experience, what does the book of Habakkuk have to say? Uh, what do we learn from the prophet's example that will aid us in our greater or lesser experiences of anxiety and fear day to day? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, when we look at the life of Habakkuk, this was a guy who had a difficult life. This was someone who struggled on a regular basis. Uh, and as we've seen from this book already, this was someone who went through a wide variety of emotions. When you think of all the different human experiences that we can have. Habakkuk had them all, from anger to fear to doubt to worry to anxiety to a feeling of being overwhelmed to a growing realisation that he had to continue his life towards God in faith. So with all of that as our background this afternoon, Habakkuk begins our passage with what is the first of four responses. We're going to look at four responses from this passage. And the first one that we see uh, is in the first part of verse 16, a recognition of fear. A recognition of fear. And have a look at what we read from the prophet in verse 16a. He says this, I heard and I trembled within, 
my lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now, we read these words this afternoon, and we can all recognize that this is something of the response of many people within our society today. Um, many people react in this way to particular situations in their own life. They tremble, they quiver, they, they have a sense of being uh, weak in their bones, and they just don't know how to, to manage that, to process that. Um, and the question that's pressing for us, based on these words from Habakkuk, is this. What was he afraid of here? What was Habakkuk genuinely afraid of? Was it the Babylonians? Was it God himself? Was it his own sin? Or was it a blend of some or all of these different sources? There's no doubt that the reaction of Habakkuk in the first part of verse 16 is a reaction to what has been described in the preceding verses, what Andrew looked at last week. And these verses highlight the power and presence of God over his creation <coughs> in order that his plan and purpose might be fulfilled. And we see this about God and his creation in the previous verses, in the previous passage from the mouth of Habakkuk. So verse 5, Habakkuk says this, Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his, that's God's steps, Verse 6, he, that's God, stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. <coughs> His pathways are ancient. Again, verse 10, the mountains see you, speaking of God, and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Verses 12 to 13, you, God, March across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. Habakkuk is recognizing from these words that this is what God had done in the past and this is what God's going to do in the future. And he's recognizing with a, a look to the future as God mysteriously uses a Babylonian empire to fulfill his plan and purpose for his people. So God was using the Babylonians to fulfill his judgment purpose for God's people. And these Babylonians would also, alongside this, one day they would have their day as well. God would have a last word on their own particular attitudes and actions. And so that's, that's really the context of the first part of verse 16. It's in all of that context that we read the opening lines in our passage. What Habakkuk says, he says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. So what was Habakkuk afraid of? What was he afraid of? What was he carrying within his heart? Was it a righteous fear or was it an unrighteous fear? Based on that context we've just read, well, at first glance, it appears that he is responding in an unrighteous way. We, we read these words initially, and we think this is someone that's not trusting God. But we never read these words or any words of Scripture in an isolated way. The context is the presence of God and the power of God. That's the backdrop to this first part in verse, verse 16. 
So we could, in fact, understand these words from Habakkuk in this way, with the backdrop in mind. I heard and I trembled within before this holy God. My lips quivered at the sound of this holy God. Rottenness entered my bones in the presence of this holy God. I trembled where I stood again in the presence of this holy God. Habakkuk's reaction does in fact have echoes of Job. In Job 14 verse 4 he says to God, I am so insignificant, how can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. We see similarities to this reaction of Habakkuk in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah 6 in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. And even the reaction of Peter before his Lord in Luke 5, 8, we read these words. Peter speaking to Jesus, go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. And for us today, we can be encouraged by a fact that there is a place for fear when it comes to the Christian life. In fact, fear is a central part of what it means for you and I to live righteously. We see this in Habakkuk. We see this in Job. We see this in Isaiah. We see this in Peter. I hope we see this as well in our own lives as we examine our lives today. Fear is so important, and it's not just any kind of fear. It's a fear that, that carries with it a deep sense of, of reverence. This, this experience of awe and wonder at the one that we worship. That, that's the fear. That's the only fear that we should ever have in our lives. This is what was going on in the life of Habakkuk. And I wonder if his response or any of these responses we've just read from Job, Isaiah, Peter, would they be our responses? Would they be our responses? Do you and I also have a deep sense of awe, an undeniable experience of reverence, a spirit-filled wonder, what we might describe as a righteous fear before this holy God? Uh, this afternoon, I just want to invite you, as you think about your own life, and as you think about how it is you can be more, <coughs> you can carry more of a fear of God. <coughs> it's contagious, mate. Um, I want us to think about Hebrews 12 and verses 28 to 29. Hebrews 12, the writer to the Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So if you're looking at your life and thinking, I don't carry or I ought to carry more of a fear of God in my life, well, run to Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. And think about this. Think about the fact that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything else is falling apart. Everything else will one day shake and be destroyed. But not God's kingdom. God's kingdom will remain. So let us be thankful. And through that lens, with that perspective, we can serve God acceptably. We can do so with reverence and with awe. Because as we look to God, we recognize... <coughs> He is a consuming fire. And get your head around that. I can't fully explain what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here. But I do know that it strikes a fear in my own heart as I think about God as a consuming fire, not just a fire, not a candle, a consuming fire. An overwhelming fire. Denison Baptist Church, our passage in Hebrews is what it looks like to fear the Lord. 
It's what it looked like for Habakkuk. It's what it looked like for Job. It's what it looked like for Isaiah. It's what it looks like for Peter. And for you to live your life in that way, to have that kind of heart response, is to have no fear of anything else in your life. That's the first response from Habakkuk. And the second response, <coughs> we find that in the next part of the verse. And it's a resolve to trust God. Second part of verse 16. A resolve to trust God. Now, there's something important going on here, something good and right going on within the life of Habakkuk. The more and more he recognizes the need to fear God and God alone, the more he resolves to then trust God wholeheartedly. So we find this in the second part of verse 16. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people in readiness. So fear, a healthy fear of God then leads to trust. Fear leads to trust. And that phrase, quietly wait, um, in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a picture of a hen <coughs> finding somewhere to land and to roost. That, that's the image that Habakkuk's trying to portray here. A hen landing and roosting. Habakkuk has found a place to make nest. He's resting in the fact that his fear of God is Yahweh's plan and purpose for his life. And this fear of God is greater and it always will be greater than any fear of the Babylonians. He's trusted not only in God's power to judge his people through the Babylonians, but for God to one day judge the Babylonians themselves. They've been used by God, but they will also righteously be one day removed by God. What's happening in the life of Habakkuk is a supernatural work of God, the ability to trust God in spite of seemingly impossible circumstances. Habakkuk, in essence, is living out Habakkuk chapter 2 in verse 4. The righteous one will live by his faith. To be righteous is not to live by circumstance. It's not to live by feeling. It's not to live by other people's expectations. <coughs> it's a choosing to live by one thing and one thing alone, faith. So you want to know what it means to be righteous is to live by faith. The reality of what is hoped for, God himself, the proof of what is not seen, God himself, Hebrews 11.1. 1. So this is what is so powerfully going on within the life of Habakkuk. It's a fear of the Lord that is leading to a faith and a trust in God. As he fears God, he's trusting in God. And we see this reflected in the life and writings of King Solomon too. We find this in Proverbs 1 verse 7. Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. So, as we fear God, we start to carry knowledge in our lives. And then in Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know him, and he will make your path straight. So, there's an undeniable biblical pattern for every single one of us this afternoon. A fear of God in our lives, a healthy fear of God, that results in wholehearted faith and trust in God. As we fear God, we trust God. That's the reality. And be encouraged by that, Denison Baptist Church, for our own lives. The more and more you, you and I live a life that is marked and fueled by a fear of the Lord, the more and more wisdom will be cultivated and knowledge will be cultivated in our lives. And the more and more you and I will resolve to trust God with all of our hearts. And I think I can be confident in saying that every single one of us here today, we all want that for our lives. We would all want to have a fear of the Lord 
We all want wisdom and knowledge and we all want to have faith and trust in God. We all want to experience this. But whether or not this is possible will be determined by what, what it is we have a fear in. <coughs> what do we fear in? What's the starting point to all this? Because it has to start with fear. Any fear outside of a fear of the Lord will not result in a life that is marked by wisdom and faith. It begins with fear, it results in wisdom, it leads to faith. And one of the most common fears that every single one of us has, and for some of us, this can be all pervasive within our lives, is a fear of man. Uh, some of us struggle with this, this fear more than others, but all of us struggle with this to some extent. Uh, it is an issue that exists in our society. It's an issue that exists within the church, a fear of man. Uh, we worry what other people think of us. We're concerned about what they might think of us. We live our lives according to our own perceived expectations of other people. And when you verbalise it, you kind of look at it and think, that's, that, that's crazy. Any one of us would ever do that. But we all do it from time to time. Uh, Charles Horton Cooley is an American sociologist. And he was trying to come to terms with the precise nature of the human condition. And he said this, and it will take us a moment to, to process this, but this is so important. He said, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Let me say that again. I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And that, in its essence, is a fear of man. We live our lives wondering and living in light of what we perceive other people are thinking about us. But the Bible says that this is dangerous. It gives a stark warning to live in that, in that way. It will cause us to stumble. It will cause us to get caught up in sin. So again, Proverbs 29, the writings of Solomon. Uh, Proverbs 29 and verse 25, Solomon says this. He says, the fear of mankind is a snare but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. So it's a trap. If we fear man, then we will be caught in a world of sin and confusion and despair. And this is what's going on in the life of Habakkuk. He has resolved to trust in God. He is the second part of that verse. He has resolved to trust in God and he is now protected. He's chosen to rest in God because he has a righteous fear of God. And so I wonder this afternoon... What is it that you're truly afraid of in your life? And I'm not talking about Halloween stuff. I'm talking about big life stuff. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? I'm just going to give you a moment to think that through. The answer to that question will be an important indicator around whether or not you're living a life of faith and trust in God. If, you're, if you have a healthy fear of God, <coughs> life of faith will follow. But if you're afraid of something else in your life, then that's going to lead to a world of pain and confusion and hurt and sorrow. Something happens when we choose to trust in God. Um, <coughs> we can look at what's going on around us. We can look at it directly in the face. And we can actively and consciously not be dismayed by it. 
We don't need to feel overwhelmed by it. If we have a fear of God, there is no fear of anything else. And so we look at our circumstances and we say, it's fine, it's okay. It's not necessarily fine or okay, but, but God, God is enough and God's going to see me through this. And this is what we see in the next response from Habakkuk. This healthy fear of God leads to a realization of circumstances. Verse 17, he has a sober judgment about what's going on in his life. And so he says this in verse 17, over the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit in the vines for the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Well, the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls. And I'm going to just stop there. It's a cliffhanger moment here, but it's important we just see what Habakkuk's doing here. It seems pretty, pretty bleak for Habakkuk, for, his, for God's people. And Habakkuk here is moving <coughs> from the macro to the micro. He's focusing in on the plight of the individual farmer here. But Habakkuk is also using agricultural language to describe the plight of the entire nation. So he's, he's focusing in on an individual, but in many ways this is reflective of the entire nation. Fig tree, vines, olive crop, fields, flocks, they're all failing, they're all falling apart. And all of this is a picture of the current state of God's people in God's land. Things are utterly hopeless, but there is no way forward. There is no way forward. And from what we read from these words of Habakkuk, there's no sense of hope. And we don't know if this is scarcity of produce because of the Babylonians and what they were doing, uh, or because of a particular season that a land found itself in. It was just a difficult time. What we do know is that Habakkuk has taken an honest assessment of the circumstances that he finds himself in, He's looking directly in the eyes of a situation he's in the middle of. And he not only sees things as they are, he verbalizes that as well. He has a sober understanding of what he is facing. And I wonder this afternoon, do you carry that same accurate picture of the world around us? <coughs> or are we living in denial? As you look at the world, are you thinking that things are actually okay? Or are you looking at the world and recognising the lostness, the destruction, the depravity, the despair? You know, we do not have the same set of economic circumstances <coughs> that Habakkuk has here. Uh, we are not in a period of famine. We still have plenty of food to eat. But when we look at the state of our city, uh, when we look at the state of our nation, when we look at the state of our world, I mean, we just need to look at the Middle East and see the chaos and the carnage that's going on there. There can be a sense of, of utter hopelessness. And maybe this also applies to our lives as well. Let's just be really honest and transparent this afternoon. Maybe you look at what you see around you in your own life and you can identify <coughs> not with crops and herds failing you, but with relationships and circumstances failing you whatever that might look like. The reality is that things are not going as you expected them to go. Um, and you, you have a sense of, of hopelessness, of fear, of worry. I think that one thing we can all agree on is that our own personal situations and circumstances are different. If we had a spectrum here today and it was like really bad to really good. I think we would all be at different places in that spectrum. 
as we think about our lives. So we're all at different points of a suffering spectrum. But I think we can all recognize that when it comes to the spiritual reality of a world that we live in, we all have commonality in terms of what we see and how we understand what is going on in our world, what is going on in our nation, what is going on in our city, what's even going on at times in our own particular sphere and context. Let me ask you a question this afternoon. Um, are we available for one another depending on the different situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in? As we think about that spectrum, are we available to help one another in the midst of these trials and difficulties? Can we see the difficulties that we go through as opportunities for us to be the church, to be there for one another, to be an encouragement, to be a prayer warrior, to be a support practically? Um, how often are we encouraging one another, um, not just a small group, within the church, but the, the entire church family. And how important is it that we do this? How essential this is to live in this particular way? And how necessary it is if we want to be a biblical church? Because this is throughout the New Testament. The one another commands are found everywhere. So as we think about our own lives and the challenges that we face, the hardships that we go through, the Habakkuk-esque moments of our lives, are we there for one another, to help one another, to encourage, to pray, to serve, to love? One thing that we can all agree on, uh, one thing that we all have commonality in, as we think about Habakkuk and his life, and as we think about what he was going through economically, as, he, as we think about his particular context, when we look at the spiritual state of our nation, um, when we look at the spiritual state of our church as a whole, the church in general, but also at times the life of Denison Baptist Church, these words of Habakkuk are in many regards a description. They can be at times a description of the fruitless world that we find ourselves in, spiritually speaking. What do I mean by that? Well, to give some kind of comparison this afternoon, if we were to take the words of Habakkuk here, in, the, in this verse, in these verses, and apply them to the state of the church in our nation, how would they relate? If we were able to transfer these words, these, these economic words of despair, and apply them in a spiritual sense to the life of the church in our nation, what would that look like? We might say something to the effect of this. Um, so this is basically... A translation, spiritually speaking, of, of what we see today. For we do not have a genuine love and passion for God and the gospel. For there is no real longing in our lives to make disciples. But we can so often be biblically illiterate. But we can find ourselves in season after season of prayerlessness. For there is no genuine sacrificial love for the church family. But we do not seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's, in many regards, a picture of the church today in our nation. I'm not saying that's Denison Baptist Church. I'm really encouraged at what God's doing in the life of this church. That can be us, though. 
There's potential for us to look like that. And there's no doubt in my mind as I look at the church as a whole and what's going on in so many churches, that's a picture of the church in our nation. So no wonder our society's falling apart if Christ's bride is not standing up and fulfilling its God-given potential. So how do we break free from this? As a nation, as a church here, as a church who wants to plant other churches and replant other churches and encourage other churches, how do we find ourselves released from that way of life, from that, that experience of, of culture, both within the church and also in our nation? Well, we have to respond as Habakkuk responds in the fi final part of our passage this afternoon. This is a fourth response. A rejoicing in the Lord always. Verses 18 to 19. So have a look at what we read in this final part. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. And then, you know, I love, I love these words. I love this passage. I love that this is his response at the end of the book. Habakkuk has been on a journey, no doubt about that. He has went from a place of confusion, of being perplexed, worried, fearful, even angry. And now he has chosen to celebrate, to rejoice, to covenant with his God that this is what he is going to do. In light of all that's happened in the past, in light of all that I've experienced, God, I'm going to rejoice now. I'm going to celebrate I'm going to trust you and believe that you're going to help me in what I'm going through. There's no doubt in my mind that as we pour out our hearts to God, we have to be honest with him. That's an essential component of prayer, uh, of communicating with God. Um, something we touched on in the first week, as we do that, there is always a danger that we can cross the line. Uh, we can sinfully doubt God and his goodness. We can sinfully accuse God of, of doing wrong or even withholding good from us. And if that is the case, then that would be sinful. Um, that would be unrighteous. The reality is that none of us have any right at any point to be angry with God ever. But Habakkuk from chapter 1 to chapter 3 has been pouring out his heart to God in a way that he still recognizes his covenant relationship with God and he recognizes God's covenant goodness because he continues to refer to him as capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. And from that place of covenant relationship, he is honest before God. He expresses his struggles before God. And this is the amazing thing. This, this shows you God's grace. God then takes him by the hand and he leads him to a place where he, at the end of chapter three, he rejoices. So it's God doing the work in him causes him to rejoice. In spite of what Habakkuk <coughs> is experiencing all around him, Habakkuk still chooses to trust and to rejoice. And it's because God is doing this in his life. And let that be what we conclude from our particular situations and circumstances. Because we all go on a journey. We all experience good moments and bad moments. But let us be a people <coughs> who actively choose to rejoice in God. No matter what it is we face, no matter what it is we find ourselves in. Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, there are many commands in the New Testament. We find them all over, from Matthew to Revelation. 
Very few commands are repeated twice, like right beside each other. Two short sentences. Paul commands each one of us to rejoice in the Lord twice in the space of two sentences, which to me shows how important it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. And this is so important, let me just say again. Rejoice. This is essential for each one of us to rejoice in the Lord always. Things are going well, rejoice. Things are going difficult, rejoice. (coughs) We're uncertain about what to do in our lives, rejoice. Always, not sometimes, always. So for you and I this afternoon, despite what might be going on around us, despite things not going as anticipated, despite particular struggles or experiences of suffering, uh, I want us just to think about what, what it might look like for us to rejoice in the Lord always, in each and every moment. I think as we sort of process and understand what that might look like, it would look something to the effect of, of what Habakkuk writes here. He says, yeah, <coughs> I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk in mountain heights. There's confidence here. Supreme confidence that God is going to help him. That's a good thing. And that's a call for each one of us. And how utterly impossible this, this is for you to, to get anywhere near this kind of response unless God is doing this in your life. So I would just encourage you, as I'm sharing this, be open to how God might do this in your own heart and mind. How utterly impossible that would be (coughs) unless you're living in faith. You come to God believing that he exists and that he's going to reward you as you seek him. And the reward is one where you're able to celebrate, one where you're able to rejoice, one where you say with confidence, the Lord, my Lord, he is my strength. Another thing to mention is a rejoicing in the Lord is all the more sweeter and all the more satisfying (coughs) Uh, when we are suffering. Um, Just like I'm suffering right now with this cough. So when we are suffering, we experience greater joy. And that's just a a paradox in the Christian life. A paradox is two two truths that appear to be contradictory but are in fact complementary. So the more we suffer, the greater the joy. I can't explain that, but that's a reality. The more you suffer, the more you'll experience joy if you allow God by his spirit to do that work. It's easy to rejoice when things are going well, when everything's cushy. When it's hard, when it's tough, when things don't make any sense, it's definitely harder, but that's why we need God's spirit. It's God by his spirit who will enable us to rejoice. And as we rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll experience we'll experience God in a way that we've never experienced him before. So, what an amazing opportunity we have to experience the joy of the Lord in our moments of suffering. Um, This afternoon, as we close, let me just finish with the words of Paul. Paul spoke a lot about um, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Obviously, rejoicing the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. But this was a big theme for Paul. Paul was a man who suffered greatly and yet greatly rejoiced. And I was just really struck by these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 and verses 7 to 12. 
These are the words of Paul, but in many ways, these are the words of Habakkuk as well. And may these be our words as well, day to day, week to week, month to month. Paul says this, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. As I share that this afternoon, uh, I'm aware that maybe for some folk watching online, you've never made a decision to follow Christ. And I just want to invite you to receive Jesus today. There is nothing more important, nothing more joyful or satisfying you can do in your life other than accepting Christ. So if you want to know what it means to do that, then do contact us. I'm also aware that there's maybe others of us here this afternoon who need to repent, who recognize certain ways in which we are falling short and we just need to take a moment to confess sin before God. And you might even want to confess sin to someone in this room as well. The invitation is there to receive prayer if that's any one of us. And this afternoon we also recognize that there's maybe just something that we're finding really difficult and, and we, just, we just need the support of our church family. Um, and we would encourage you during the time of worship afterwards as we have tea and coffee to receive prayer for that. Uh, take time to, to listen to what God's saying. Chat to someone you know who loves the Lord and we would count it a privilege to to listen, to pray, to encourage. Uh, this afternoon we also come to the table and we do so because of the powerful reality of, of all that God is. Um, as we take this bread and, and drink this cup, um, we do so with a recognition that our God is good and he is always faithful. And because of that we can rejoice because no matter what we face, suffering or blessing, he is with us and he wants to make us more Christ-like through what we experience. So we come to this table and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that I get to, to be a part of your family. Thank you that you have a plan and purpose for my life and that you will never leave me nor forsake me. For those of us who would maybe recognize that we're still on a journey, and we would invite you not to come to the table, but to observe, to pray in this moment. As people come to the table to ask that God would reveal in your heart what it means to take this bread and drink this cup and to pray and ask that God would become more and more of a reality within your life. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So tonight, this afternoon, we take this bread, we drink this cup. And we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. So all of what we do today is in, an, in anticipation of eternity. And that's, that should cultivate joy in our lives as we think about all that God has planned for us in the future. Uh, let me pray and then Andrew's going to share just a, a short testimony about the passage we spent time looking at. So let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for just how good you are. Uh, thank you, Lord, that 
that you do love us and that you do take us by the hand. Sometimes you even carry us through the most difficult of moments. But Lord, we know that this is an opportunity to rejoice. And we pray, Lord, that you would empower us to rejoice. I pray, Lord, that we would believe in your word. We would be confident in your gospel and that we would actively choose to say yes. In the midst of what we suffer, we would not let go. We would hold on and that you would take us by the hand and work in and through us and lead us through the storm. And Lord, I thank you that as we go through these moments, these seasons, that, that we are stronger because of it, that our character is more edified, and Lord, that we are more Christ-like. And so, Lord, we, we see that nothing is ever wasted in your economy. So, Lord, bless us and be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The testimony I want to share this afternoon, it's not actually my testimony. I'm really just speaking on behalf of somebody who can't share that testimony themselves anymore. Um, but just to give a bit of context, I became a Christian uh, in my early teens and in the, the Baptist Church in Arlington. And I was quite fortunate at that time. There was a, a group of us, maybe 10, 11, 12 of us, all about the, all about the same age. Um, and so we kind of grew up. Um, physically and spiritually um, as, as a group, but one of the one of the guys in the church, Derek, uh, he had a wee a wee sister, Eleanor. Now Eleanor was about six, five, six years um, younger than the rest of us, um, but that age difference therefore meant that when we as teenagers were coming to the end of um, secondary school, high school, and we were going on to the next great adventures in our life in terms of either you know going and getting jobs or going on to study at college or university or that. Eleanor was just at that age where her adventure was she was leaving primary school and she was going up to up to high school. And I said at about twelve years old, Eleanor was just a typical typical wee girl, typical wee kid. She was bright, bubbly, uh, always run about, always kind of noisy, always fed up that she couldn't get to do things that her big brother and everybody else in the church could get to do. Um, but one of the things that we noticed at, uh, at, at the age of 12 was she suddenly developed a, a, a limp. And originally we just thought that's typical 12-year-old. She's probably at some point fallen or she's twisted her ankle or something like that. But this limp persisted. In fact, it got worse. Uh, it got noticeably worse. And eventually it actually got to the stage where Eleanor was got a reputation for being clumsy. She would quite often stumble or she would quite often fall over and when she got to about 14 what we then discovered was that she'd actually been diagnosed with a condition called Freddy's ataxia which is quite a rare condition we'd never heard of it and I don't imagine that many of you have heard it of it either Freddy's ataxia is a progressive neurological condition it affects the nerves in your body it causes them to basically to die and therefore the functions that these nerves control um, 
you you lose the, the function. And so what was happening to Eleanor was that first and foremost it was affecting the muscles in her in her legs, uh, and it was affecting therefore her ability to to walk. Um, and like I said, this condition just progressed, um, and so um, over the years, although Eleanor. Um, she went from walking to having to walk with sticks. Um, she did learn to drive a car with um, with adaptions, but that lasted for about a year and a half, maybe two years maximum. And then she lost the, the, the physical strength and, and the coordination to be able to drive safely. So that went. And then over time, um, she uh, ended up in a wheelchair um, she slowly lost the ability to, to speak and to communicate, and she eventually um, could only communicate through the through the use of a computer, um, and and that was it. Um, now, Fred's ataxia, depending on how it progresses in nerves and nails, the the average life expectancy for somebody with uh, Fred's ataxia is somewhere about early to late twenties, and that's your life expectancy. Um, and Eleanor lived till she was 47 um, and that long life was both a, a, in many respects was a blessing and a curse because what happened was that she spent almost a decade and a half with an absolutely bright and fantastic mind but locked in a body that couldn't do anything um, and so she was dependent on her parents for absolutely everything throughout her life and eventually it got to the stage, as expected, that um, the eventually the, the nerve damage reaches the most important organs, which is the lungs and the heart. And that's what kills somebody with Fred's ataxia. And at 47, um, we were, as a group of people, we had had 20 years where we had done all the things that we we expected to do as teenagers. We left school, we got jobs, we got partners, we married, we had children of our own, all of these all of these things. And then as a group, we gathered together for Eleanor's funeral and at her funeral, Habakkuk chapter three, verses 17, 18, and 19, these were the verses that Eleanor specifically requested would be read at her funeral. I forgot to bring my Bible up with me, so if Jeremy could put it on the screen. So though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. And from somebody who had not been able to walk for, at this point, 25 years, that last verse in itself was quite a statement. But the whole passage itself, when, when we looked at Eleanor and, you know, you were aware of not only the things that she never had that we took for granted, but the things that were taken away from her at that early age, this passage was an absolutely and continues to be an absolutely amazing statement of her faith. There was no anger, there was no bitterness, there was no resentment. There was just this faith that God is good and that God is faithful. And for me, 
the challenge has always been, as I read this passage, as we follow God, as we serve God, do we do that because of the blessings that God gives us? Or are we serving God for who he is and what he's already done for us? And as Mark said in his message um, this afternoon, it's easy to to rejoice and to serve God um, when things are, are good, when things are going well. But it's a struggle when life is difficult, uh, when things are, uh, when, when perhaps you feel that life is unfair or that life is not going the way that, that you would expect that it should. So I hope this afternoon, and this is not my testimony, but I hope in sharing Eleanor's testimony that it will both be a, a challenge and an encouragement to you as well.